Turn to 63. to Mark 13. Mark chapter 13. We will get there eventually. The tendency when reading Mark 13 and its parallel in Matthew 24, a more expanded version of what Jesus said, the tendency is to read it as if it is just Jesus' eschatology and that he is providing some new information. Far too often when reading the left-behind type books, that's the approach. They start at Matthew 24. They start at Mark 13 as if that is the beginning of what Jesus is now revealing. 
I'm going to argue this morning and then demonstrate at some great length that Jesus is not introducing any new information through here. In fact, what he's doing is reciting information that is already in what we call the Old Testament, already in the Jews' scripture. In the writing from their prophets, they already have all of the information that Jesus is presenting. He is just simply pointing out that it's all still valid, that it's all still going to happen, and he pushed it out into the future. But as he goes through these eschatological prophecies that he is moving forward, we're going to see themes. We're going to keep seeing these themes. Now, you know, last week I said that I like to find repetitions in the Bible. I like to find thematic elements in the Bible. Last week it was sacrifice. This week we're going to talk about the day of the Lord, and we're going to talk about the the heavens being darkened. These are thematic elements. We're going to see the wrath of God as a theme that runs through the Old Testament. We're going to see that Jesus, again, is just repeating concepts, ideas, prophecies that already exist in their scripture. As I said, he's just simply saying, this is still good. This is still valid. This is still going to happen. The fact that I am here, that I am the son of God, doesn't negate anything the prophets have said. Remember that he did tell them in the Sermon on the Mount that he was not there to abolish the law or the prophets. He was there to fulfill the law and the prophets, meaning that everything the prophets have said, everything the law and the prophets, the Old Testament has said, all has to be genuinely, literally part of the history of the people to whom the prophets were speaking in the first place. So Jesus did not negate anything that the prophet said, and even when he's speaking eschatologically, he is simply continuing to confirm the fact that that's going to happen. Now, from a thematic standpoint, let me show you kind of what I'm talking about. Last week, we saw that Mark said that there was going to be an abomination of desolation, language that we find back in the book of Daniel, so language that the Jewish audience listening to Jesus would have been familiar with, that the abomination of desolation is going to stand, Mark says, where he should not be. If you go read it out of Matthew 24, it says that the abomination of desolation is going to stand in the holy place. Matthew writing to a strictly Jewish audience would make that reference to the holy place and they would all know that he's talking about the temple. So there's an abomination of desolation that's going to stand in the temple. Paul picks up that language, refers to a man of sin, and that that man of sin is going to stand in the temple showing himself that he is God. And that's going to be the abomination that stands in the temple. Well, all of that, all of that language, all those ideas are back in the book of Daniel, In the book of Daniel, that character is referred to as the little horn. He's referred to as the final king of the north. And so now we get a pretty consistent view from Jesus, from Paul, from Daniel, from the prophets, that there is going to be a temple built at some point in the future, and that the 
little horn character, the king of the north character, is going to stand in it and erect an idol to himself in it, and that that is going to be an abomination, and that's going to make the temple desolate. And Jesus says, when you see that, run. He says to the people living in Jerusalem, when you see that happen, run. Okay, now one of the things that Daniel tells us is that this person, this little horn, this final king of the north, is going to make a one-week peace pact with Israel. And part of the deal of that pact is going to be that they can rebuild their temple. Now again, this is thematic, because ever since Solomon's temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, every other temple that you see built in Jerusalem, every one of them, have been under the headship under the dominion of foreign Gentile kings. We've been reading Ezra and Nehemiah, and we've seen that that has happened under the Medo-Persian kings, under Cyrus, and ultimately under Artaxerxes. So even though they have a temple and they have a city again, and Jerusalem is rebuilt, they don't have a king. They are still under the headship of Medo-Persia. And then Greece conquers Medo-Persia, so then the Middle East and the temple are under the dominion of Greece. And then at the time Jesus is on the planet, the Romans are in charge and in fact have put an Edomian king in power there in Jerusalem. The people by and large hate the Edomian king, so what does he do? In order to curry favor with the people, he expands the temple. He puts significant money into the temple, and he builds the temple that Jesus walked into. We know that is Herod's temple. But then, as we saw in the last couple of weeks, his apostles say to him, look at all these stones, look at this magnificent structure, look at this building, and he says to them, not one stone standing here is going to be left on another. It's all going to be knocked down. It's all going to be raised. It's all going to be destroyed. That happened in AD 70. So there hasn't been a temple on the Temple Mount ever since. You get the picture? Meanwhile, Jesus, Daniel, Paul talk about an abomination of desolation that has to stand in the holy place. So there has to be a temple again. Daniel tells us there is going to be a temple again But it's going to be under the dominion of the king of the north. He's the one who's going to work out the deal to allow them to do it. So even that kingdom is still going to be under Gentile rule, Gentile dominion. It's not until you see Ezekiel's temple in the time of the millennium that you finally find a truly God-worshipping theocracy type temple. It's not till then. During this age men are going to continue to build or allow to be built temples in Jerusalem, but they're also going to control them. And they're also going to ultimately destroy them again. We know that the temple coming is going to be destroyed again. Well, this is thematic. This is all the way through the Old Testament. We've been studying it on Wednesdays. It's in the New Testament during the time that Jesus is on the planet. And it's eschatological because the temple that's coming is also going to be under the rule of Gentile folks who have dominion over them. That's what I mean when I say, I said all that. To say that's what I mean when I say, look for themes. Look for things that have continuity in them. 
Now as we read through Mark 13, starting at verse 24, we're going to find again themes. We're going to find day of the Lord stuff. And before we can even start reading at Mark 13, 24, we have to start looking into what is this day of the Lord because Jesus is about to say, after these things, after this time of tribulation, so he just kind of leaps through the tribulation, the tribulum, the great, the thalipsis megas. He just reaches right over it and says, now after those days. Well, how can he say that? How can he just say that so quickly, like shorthand, and keep moving? It's because the whole day of the Lord in tribulation is described in the Old Testament. It's already described in the scripture. The people he is talking to already know this stuff. We don't know it. The popular notions of Christian eschatology don't seem to know it. But any thoroughgoing Jew who was well-versed in his scripture would know it, which is why Jesus could just reference it and then move on. So we're going to get to know it. We're going to spend a little time in the Old Testament talking about the day of the Lord. For instance, don't turn to Zechariah 14.6, but it says, In that day, in the day of the Lord, there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. In other words, the stars, the sun, the moon are all going to stop giving their light. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. Well, that's where we're going to start in Mark 13, 24. In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven. Okay, that's thematic. But it's not just said there and it's not just said in Zechariah. It is said repeatedly throughout the Old Testament that one of the ways you can know that Jesus is coming back is that the sun, moon, and stars are going to go dark and then the sign of the Son of Man is going to appear in the heavens. The sun and the moon and the stars go dark. That's a clue. When you see that happen, then you know that something dramatic is about to occur. For instance, Isaiah 13, starting at verse 6. This one you can look up if you want to, because we'll be reading a fairly long section of it. Isaiah 13, I'm going to read from verse 6 to verse 13, starts with the word whale. Not like a big fish. Whale, be sad, cry, lament. Why? For the day of the Lord is near. Here's that day of the Lord language again. What's it like? It will come as destruction from the Almighty. And therefore, all men's hands will fall limp. And every man's heart will melt. And they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. By the way, that's another thematic element. In trying to describe how bad it's going to be, several of the prophets say, you're going to see men walking around with their arms around their bellies bent over like women who are in labor because they're going to be in such pain. They're going to be terrified. Pains and anguish will take a hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel 
with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. And the sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. There comes that theme again, the same theme that Jesus picks up in Mark 13, 24. The stars of the heaven, their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud. Does that sound thematic to you? I've said to you many times, what's the most often repeated sin in the Bible? It's always pride. It's always arrogance. It's always the lack of humility in human beings. Well, God is finally going to put an end to the arrogance of the proud. And he is going to abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal men scarcer than pure gold. And I will make mankind scarcer than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. Does that sound like fun? Okay, so Jesus knows they know that. They know the prediction of Isaiah. They know what Zechariah has said. They have day of the Lord references in their head. So he can mention the time of tribulation and just keep moving. He's not introducing anything new. He's saying, oh yeah, you know all that stuff? It's still real. It's still coming. It's still going to be satisfied literally, genuinely in time. The same way that all the prophecies about me are being Fulfilled genuinely, literally, in time. The book of Joel, you can turn there if you feel like it. The book of Joel starts right out, Joel chapter 1, starting at verse 13 by saying, Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament. There it is again, that wailing, that crying. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, Spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. That's a sign of repentance and remorse before God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord, alas, for that day. For the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as a destruction from the Almighty. Okay, how many prophets so far is that? Okay, we've seen Joel, we've seen Zechariah, we've seen Isaiah. The prophets are speaking with one voice, that there is a time when God is finally going to punish Israel for everything they've done against him, for uh, chasing their foreign gods, for even intermarrying with foreign women and having their hearts taken away for the way that they have 
committed all kinds of sexual perversions and sins for the very way that they have rebelled against him over and over again God is ultimately going to punish them and that punishment is going to be so bad that it is going to finally engulf the whole world and God is going to punish sinners for their sinfulness but wait Joel's not done Joel chapter 2 verse 1 blow a trumpet in Zion where's Zion it's Israel it's Jerusalem Blow the trumpet. Why? Why would you blow a trumpet in Zion? It's a warning. It's letting the armies know. It's letting the people know. Get up. The trumpet's blowing. And sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Where's my holy mountain? That's the Mount of Jerusalem where the temple is. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. And surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and a mighty people. It's a great and a mighty army, and there has never been anything like it. Joel is going to say this is the army that God is using in order to accomplish the outpouring of his wrath on Jerusalem. And this is what that army is going to be like. There's never been anything like it, nor will there ever be anything like it again. To the years of many generations, a fire consumes before them and behind them a flame burns. The land ahead of them is like the Garden of Eden before them, but it is a desolate wilderness behind them and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, so they run. With the noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish, and all faces turn pale, and they run like mighty men, and they climb the wall like soldiers, and they each march in line, and they do not deviate from their paths, and they do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. And when they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city, they run on the wall, they climb into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. And before them the earth quakes, and the heavens tremble, and the sun and the moon grow dark. And the stars lose their brightness. See that thematic idea, that thematic element? All of this bad news we're reading about all has one feature in common. The sun and the moon go dark and the stars go dark. When you see that happen, then you know that the day of the Lord has occurred. And the Lord utters his voice before his army. Notice it's now called his army because he's utilizing foreign armies in order to spill his wrath on the residents of Jerusalem. And the Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. And the day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who, good question, can endure it? But wait, the Old Testament's not done. Amos 5, 18 to 20 says... Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose 
will the day of the Lord be to you. It will be darkness and not light. As when a man flees from a lion. This is, I think, almost comical. Amos says, it's like you see a lion, the lion lunges at you, you flee from the lion, and you're caught by a bear. (laughs) You're going to get caught either way. Either way, you're going to get torn up limb from limb. Or he goes home and he leans his hand against a wall like, oh man, that was close. I escaped the lion and the bear. I'm just going to rest here on the wall. And there's a snake on the wall and it bites him. He goes home, he leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. You're going to get bit, you're going to get killed, you're going to get torn apart no matter what. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? I've said so many times over the years that the prophets speak with one voice. Are you getting that sense now? Because not only do they speak with one voice about God regathering Israel and reestablishing Israel in their ancient homeland that's been promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they speak with one voice that first God is going to punish Israel and punish the world and punish them bad. Let's say for just a moment that at this moment your full trust and full confidence is not in Christ. Take these words seriously, because the only way you escape this, if you can't escape the lion, the bear, and the snake, if you can't escape the marauding armies, if you can't escape the stars falling from heaven, in fact, you read in the book of Revelation that when the sign of the Son of Man is in the heavens, that the men that are on the earth, the ones whose names aren't written in the book of life, that they run to the rocks and the caves and the dens and they cry to the rocks and they say, fall on us and hide us because the wrath of God has come. Zephaniah says it this way. By the way, everybody feeling good so far? It's a pretty uplifting message so far. Just stick with me. It gets gooder. Zephaniah 1, starting at verse 2, I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds from the sky and the fish from the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off the remnant of Baal from his place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. And those who bow down on their housetops to the host of heaven which would be all the stars and the planets and the foreign gods, let's say, if you're really, really into astrology. And those who bow down and swear to Yahweh, and yet they swear by Milcom, is this translation, it's Molech. Those who not only worship God, but then worship some other god. At the same time. And they see an equality between the two. And this is the same God, Yahweh, who said, commandment number one, you'll have no other gods before me. He solely, he individually and completely deserves all your attention and all your worship. And those who have turned their back from following Yahweh, 
and those who have not sought Yahweh or inquired of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and has consecrated his guests. Do you see what God is saying there? I'm going to burn man up. That's my sacrifice. I have prepared a sacrifice to myself, and I'm going to sacrifice my enemies. And then it will come about on that day of the Lord's sacrifice, after he has consecrated or set aside his own guests. By the way, you want to be on that guest list. You want to be among the guests who watch him sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests, and then it will come about on that day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's sons and all who clothe themselves in foreign garments, and I will punish on that day all who leap from the temple threshold and who fill the house of the Lord with violence and deceit. And on that day, declares the Lord, there will be a sound from the cry of the fish gate and a wailing from the second quarter and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. By the way, now do you get some sense of why Jesus walked into the temple and said, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Here God is saying that he's going to cut off all those who have gone into the temple who fill the house of the Lord with violence and with deceit. And then Jerusalem from the fish gate to the second quarter. There's going to be crashing on the hill. So then wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the people of Canaan are going to be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. And it will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. In other words, when he says, I'm going to search out Jerusalem with lamps, he's saying there's nowhere for you to hide. Even if you're in the dark, I'm going to find you and I'm going to punish you because you've been stagnant in spirit, and that stagnation has taken the form of saying, God doesn't really care. He's not real concerned about his word or about his law or about his statutes because the Lord will not do ultimately. Everything has remained the same as it's always been. He's ultimately not going to do any good or any evil. God might be up there, but he's not doing anything. He's not actively involved. He doesn't really care. The prophet says that is stagnation of spirit. So moreover, verse 13, their wealth will become plunder and their houses will become a desolation. Yes, they will build houses, but they will not inhabit them and plant vineyards, but not drink from the wine. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified city and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like 
dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. That's what Jesus is referring to when he says, after the tribulation of those days, any thoroughgoing, well-read Jew knows all this. And he's saying, you know all that bad news? You know all that stuff the prophets have told you? Oh, that's still coming. You better come to me. You better believe in me. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I'm the redeemer. I'm the deliverer. If you think getting delivered out of Egypt was a big deal, out of slavery, I'm going to deliver you from the very wrath of God. This is why Paul could write that the Christians, the, one that are, the ones that are redeemed, the ones that have the blood of Christ working on their behalf, those people are not, to quote Paul, appointed to wrath. And that's really, really good news because the wrath of God sounds really, really frightening. Amen. Especially if you take the word of God genuinely, literally. But wait, it's not over. Ezekiel 7, starting at verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, And you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, to the land of Israel. Remember that, it's to the land of Israel. He says, an end, an end is coming on the four corners of the land. Now an end is upon you, and I will send my anger against you. I will judge you according to your ways and bring all your abominations upon you. For my eye will not pity you, nor will I spare you, but I will bring your ways upon you, and your abominations will be among you, and then you will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, a disaster, a unique disaster In other words, there's never been anything like this, and there's never going to be anything like this. It is a unique disaster. Behold, it is coming. An end is coming. The end has come. It has awakened against you. Behold, it has come. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. The time has come. The day is near. Tumult rather than joyful shouting on the mountains. And now I will shortly pour out my wrath on you. And spend my anger against you. Oh, he's not just going to pour out his anger. He's going to spend his anger till he's fully spent. I will judge you according to your ways and bring on you all your abominations. My eye will show no pity, nor will I spare. I will repay you according to all your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I, the Lord, do the smiting. Behold the day. Behold, it is coming. Your doom has gone forth. The rod has budded and arrogance has blossomed. Violence has grown into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain. None of their people, none of their wealth, nor anything eminent among them. The time has come. The day has arrived. Let not the buyer rejoice nor the seller mourn. For wrath is against all of them in their multitude. Indeed, the seller will not regain what he has sold as long as they both live. For the vision regarding all the multitude will not be averted, nor will any of them maintain his life by his iniquity. 
They have blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but no one is going to the battle, for my wrath is against all their multitude. The sword is outside, the plague and the famine are inside, and he who is in the field will die by the sword, and famine and plague will also consume those that are in the city, and even when their survivors escape, they will be on the mountain like doves of the valley, all of them mourning, each of them mourning over their iniquity, and all hands will hang limp, and all knees will become like water. And they will gird themselves with sackcloth, and shuddering will overwhelm them, and shame will be on all their faces, and baldness on their own heads. Don't say a word. <laughs> I didn't mean to point right at my wife. And yet, he's saying their hair is going to be pulled out because they're so ashamed. Baldness is going to be on their heads. They will fling their silver into the streets. Their gold will become an abhorrent thing. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of God. They cannot satisfy their appetite, nor can they fill their stomachs, for their iniquity has become an occasion of stumbling. You getting a feel for this yet? Aren't you glad you came to church? Aren't you glad you got out of bed today? Aren't you glad you drove from Indiana? Because so far, wow, what a feel-good message. Okay, one more passage. Jeremiah 30, this is where he's going to call the tribulation specifically the time of Jacob's trouble. This is all about Israel. These are all Israel's prophets. It keeps referring to Jerusalem and the holy mountain and the holy hill. It keeps referring to Jerusalem and to the Jews Because they are the people that God chose and elected and gave his law from whom he is requiring obedience that they're not giving him and he is going to punish them. And the wrath of God is going to be displayed and the holiness and the anger of God is going to be displayed as he continues to reveal himself here on planet earth. Jeremiah 30, starting at verse 1, says, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. And the Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. For thus says the Lord God, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all their faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress." Jacob's trouble, but he will be saved from it. Jesus comes on the planet and he says, there's a time of trouble coming. Great trouble. Megas. Philipsis Megas. There's a great tribulation coming, unlike anything that ever was or ever would be again. The same language that Jeremiah used. And it is the time of Israel's distress. One more. Because it's picked up again in Revelation. At the very end of all the eschatological stuff, Revelation 6.12 says, I looked when he, Christ, broke the sixth seal. 
And there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when it's shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll, and when it had rolled up and every mountain and island were moved from its places, then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the God for the great day of their wrath has come. And who, here's that question again, is able to stand. Okay, that's all introduction. Because now we're finally to our text for the morning. I think you know the rule. Does not count against my time. Mark 13, verse 24. Here's Jesus repeating what we've already learned. But in those days, after the tribulation... What tribulation? Oh, the one Jeremiah talked about. Oh, the one Daniel talked about. Oh, that time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. The time of Jacob's trouble. Oh, that tribulation that includes the day of the Lord. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. That they know. They know all that information. He's repeating information that they've known from their own prophets. Now he adds something to it. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power, great glory. That phrase, the Son of Man, reaches all the way back to Daniel 7. Daniel 7, starting at verse 13, says... I kept looking in the night at visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there was one like a son of man who was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is the one which will not be destroyed. So now the Jews know that there's a Messiah figure coming, that there is someone coming like the Son of Man. And when the Son of Man comes, he's going to establish the everlasting kingdom they've been waiting for, that kingdom that all the prophets have predicted. They're waiting for that. Jesus keeps saying, I'm him. I'm the son of man. As soon as he uses that nomenclature, he's identifying himself as the one that Daniel saw in a vision. But notice what else he's doing. They want him to form the kingdom right then and there while he's on the planet. That's why they tried to make him a king by force. They want him to be a king, throw off the yoke of Rome, establish the kingdom that's been promised ever since the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Make us the kind of kingdom again that we were under David and under Solomon. And then we've had Babylon and Medo-Persia. We've had Greece. We've had Rome. We've had all these Gentile kingdoms rule over us. We want our own king. You're it. You're the best king ever. You can feed us every day. Nobody has to work. You can go get money out of fish's mouths. You're, You're the great king. Be our king, 
Here's what he tells him. It's not going to be until after the days of the tribulation. It's not going to be until after the day of the Lord, after the day of his wrath, after the punishment. And then you're going to see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, which Daniel tells us to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And then all the peoples, the nations, and the men of every language are going to serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. You go all the way back to the book of Daniel, and what you see is kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. And there's final kingdom every time after the ten-toed kingdom or after the various animal kingdoms or the various statue kingdoms. There's always that great stone that comes down from heaven and crushes all the other kingdoms and establishes a kingdom that's never going to end so they know that's coming they know there's a kingdom coming that's never going to end and he said first you got to go through the wrath first you got to go through the tribulation then the son of man is going to come back just like Daniel said and he's going to come back on clouds and then he's going to establish the kingdom that's never going to end in other words what did Jesus basically say everything your prophets have told you is true everything your prophets predicted is still valid just because I was here doesn't change a thing. This is much of the reason that I continue to read the Bible genuinely, literally, contextually, historically, because I take every word of it at its face value, because Jesus did. And Jesus repeats it, and Jesus puts it into the future. I'm going to come back and establish a kingdom with great power and glory. Then what's going to happen, verse 27, and then he will send forth the angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the furthest end or the farthest end of the earth and from the farthest end of heaven. Now you could read right past that and miss that Jesus has just repeated what all the prophets have said over and over again. Let's take it in elements. First off, who's the elect he's referring to? Is he talking about the church at this point? He's not talking about the church. The church did not exist at the time he was saying this. When he was speaking to his Jewish audience and he refers to the elect, they, of course, would have thought of themselves. Why? Because the Old Testament says it over and over again. For instance, 1 Chronicles 16.13, O seed of Israel, his servant, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. Some translations say, his elect. Psalm 105.6, O seed of Abraham, his servant, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, his elect. Psalm 135.4, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself and Israel as his own possession. Isaiah 41.8, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, or how about Isaiah 44, first two verses? But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, mine elect, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord, who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, who I have chosen. That's Jerusalem. Isaiah 45, 4. For the sake of Jacob, my servant... And Israel, my chosen, the King James says, my elect, I have also called you by your name. 
and I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. That's God speaking on Cyrus. He's talking about Cyrus there. Isaiah 65, 9, and I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and an heir for my mountains from Judah, and even my chosen ones shall inherit it and my servants shall dwell there. Okay, so now knowing how many times God has referred to Israel and Jacob, can't forget their sinful proclivities, he refers to them over and over as my chosen, my elect. Then Jesus says, God's going to send angels and he's going to gather his elect on the planet. So what are they thinking immediately? They're thinking, oh, that's right. All the prophets have promised us that we're going to be gathered again, all 12 tribes, and brought back to the land of Israel, back to Jerusalem, back to worship God. And that's what we've been promised over and over. And Jesus says, same thing. By the way... That very specifically and clearly, directly from the words of Jesus, completely undermines church Israel replacement theology, for those of you who know what I just said. It also utterly and completely undermines amillennial theology, because amillennialism denies a future for Israel nationally, and here Jesus confirmed it. And he confirmed it based on what all the prophets have already said. He confirmed that that's what God is going to do. By the way, I'm just going to throw this out there just for fun. My wife and I were up in Cincinnati this week, and we got to hear John MacArthur speak a couple of times. John is getting up there in years, and he, he just don't care no more. Uh, he, he doesn't care what you think of what he has to say anymore. He went so far as to call amillennialism heresy. I know. He just spit it out there and kept going. And she and I looked at each other like, well, okay, all right. He was really good. He was very strong. And in fact, you can hear those messages on YouTube, on the Creation Museum website, I think it is. But uh, John was just gunning away at the fact that you have to take the Bible for what it says, literally what it says, genuinely what it says. And if you don't, you have no idea what it says. And I sat there thinking, we're just so in league when it comes to just read the Bible for what it says. All of it, contextually, historically, get a grasp of what it says, and you cannot come away an amillennialist. So he's going to send forth his angels, and he will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth from the farthest end of heaven. Now that language of four winds and heaven has caused some people to say, well, that's the rapture. See, he's gathering his elect, the church, from the winds and from the ends of heaven. And so clearly this is a rapture thing. This is about the church. But that same language that Jesus used here is the exact same Language that the prophets have used in the Old Testament already when God said he's going to scatter Israel. Here I'll show you. Zechariah 2.6. Ho there. Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. He's talking to Israel. For I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. All Jesus did was pick up the same language. He said, yeah, I've dispersed you to the four winds of the heavens. 
I'm going to gather you from the four winds of the heavens. You see the continuity here? Again, Jesus isn't saying anything new, unique. He's just continuing to say what the prophets have all said. Revelation 7.1 says, And this I saw, four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. So there you get the four corners of the earth language, the same thing Jesus is talking about. Deuteronomy 4.32, very, very early in God's dealings with Israel, while he's still giving them the law, says, Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you. Since the day that God created man on the earth, and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything been done like this great thing, or has anything been heard like it? In other words, he's saying, inquire on the planet from one end of the heavens to the other. The language is consistent. Deuteronomy 30 says, if your outcasts, the outcasts of Israel, are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Jesus says, And then he will send forth his angels, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth. That's exactly what Deuteronomy said. And from the farthest end of heaven. He's just using language that the prophets have already used. I said at the beginning, an hour ago, that he's not going to create anything new here. He's just going to confirm what the prophets have already said and put it into that eschatological context, cast it out into the future, and say this is all still going to happen. Now, verse 28, learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender, puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. Do you understand his example? He's saying, look, you can read basic signs. If you walk outside and it's snowing, you know summer's over. That's pretty basic. But when the snow melts and the days get longer and the sun starts coming back earlier, you know summer's coming. He says to folks who are very familiar with fig trees, he says, learn a parable from the fig tree. When you see the branch becoming tender and putting forth leaves, you know it's almost summer. That's what happens. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening. What things? All the stuff we read this morning. When you see the sun and the moon and the stars go dark. When you see the sign of the Son of Man coming in his glory. When you see all these things happening, recognize that he is near. He's right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. I don't have time to go into any great depth on this, but I will quickly Here's the Greek word in English letters. Genea. That's the word that's translated generation here. I have a video on my YouTube channel where I go into greater depth on this. But all you need to know is that genea is the root of 
What does that say? Genealogy. Genealogy. Genea has that gen root, that generation root. And what Genea means is people of a common descent, a common genealogy, of a common race of people. Jesus has just described, and the prophets have described, a time of such horror and terror that, of course, the Israelites listening to him would think no one can survive. How could anyone survive that? Jesus reassures them that this Genea, this genealogical group, you Israelites, who I'm talking to and who I'm talking about, you will not pass away till all these things are accomplished. Which means Israel is going to survive through the time of tribulation, through the days of the Lord. We know that has to be the case because they're the ones that are ushered into the millennium. When finally there's going to be a genuine theocracy and the genuine worship of God. Now there are folks who will take that, verse 30, and create all kinds of theological ideas. Some will say, well, see, that's proof that Jesus came back in 70 A.D., because that's the generation he was speaking to. A generation is 40 years. He spoke 40 years. There's 70 A.D. So everything we just read was accomplished in 70 A.D. <clears throat> Which means Jesus came back in 70 A.D. And we missed it. And the sun and the moon and the stars went dark. And, and somehow no historian anywhere bothered to mention it. So I don't believe that 70 A.D., which was horrible in its own right, but it was still a limited skirmish at one place on the earth in the Middle East. It didn't branch out to all nations and all people, tribes, and tongues. Therefore, I refuse to believe it's the worst time that ever was or ever will be again. Hitler. Okay, that's pretty bad. Would that be equally bad as 70 AD? Yeah, actually would be. Worse. So, so then could 70 AD be the worst thing that ever happened? So the misreading of generation to think that Jesus was speaking of a 40-year period of time where everybody alive at that period of time is a generation of people is a misreading of the Greek word. The Greek word genea, as I demonstrated to you, means people of a common descent. And that's why we use it this way, as the root of genealogy. And we didn't even change it. We just stuck a logie on the end. We stuck a logie on the end. Come on, I got nothing for that? Okay, fine. We're nearly done. Two, three hours max. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And then in the same way, again, context, in the same way he says, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. And this generation, this Ganea, these people will not pass away till all these things take place. But, verse 32, but of that day and hour, no man knows, not even the angels in heaven who apparently are just standing by waiting for the word, nor the Son, but the Father alone knows when that day of the Lord is going to be. So take heed, keep on the alert, 
for you do not know when the appointed time is. There's your inspiration. You don't know when he's coming back. You don't know when he's coming back to get his church. You don't know when he's going to interrupt time again. He's done it once. He's going to do it again. And you don't know when. Wouldn't it be great if he came back and found you doing exactly what he told you to do? Or what if he comes back and finds you goofing off somewhere? Well, we've already read from the prophets that those people whose spirit has become lackadaisical, those are the people God's going to punish. Take heed. Keep on alert. For you do not know when the appointed time is. It's like this, says Jesus. It's like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether it's at evening or midnight or the cock crowing or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you lackadaisical, find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to everybody, be on the alert. Okay, so I read all that stuff from the Old Testament about the day of the Lord so that you can really feel what's coming and you can recognize the warning, be on the alert. Be aware. You don't want any part of that. You don't want to be in that. Now, before we get to questions, I'm going to quick answer the question I know is coming. Because I know that somebody in the room or somebody listening on the internet is going to say, how come Jesus doesn't know when the day of the Lord is? Because after all, he's God. After all, he shows he has authority and power. Uh, why doesn't he know that? He just said the angels don't know and the Son of Man doesn't know that, that, that only God knows, only the Father knows. Why is that? Anybody got a good answer they'd like to throw out there? Good, I'm glad no one did because I'm going to tell you the answer. That's not the subject he's talking about. So if you're going to introduce that subject and introduce that question then you're completely opposite what the text is about. Here, let me see if I can make it clearer. People argue all the time, and we did in men's group, about whether or not in Romans 7, which was read this morning by Christian as our scripture reading, they argue, was Paul writing from the perspective of a saved man or a lost man when he said, I desire to do the law, but what things I desire I don't do? Was he writing as a saved man or a lost man? And people have argued for 2,000 years about that. And it's not addressed. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he's writing as a saved man or a lost man. What he's writing about, what the topic is, is the impossibility of keeping the law. That's the topic. So these extraneous questions that people ask in order to try to confound the Bible don't make any sense to me. The simple reality is exactly what we read. Jesus himself, who is Lord and Master, Jesus himself, who is God incarnate, told us he doesn't know. 
And that's the end of it. That's it. You can argue about hypostatic unions all day, and you can argue about whether he emptied himself of some quality of godhood that allowed him as a man not to know all the things that God knew. You can argue about all that stuff forever, and you'll get nowhere. The simple reality is the one who came to tell us everything we need to know about his relationship with God and our relationship with God, that one told us he doesn't know, and that's the end of it. You got it? There. Stop typing. That was for the folks on the internet. Don't send me an email. I'm just going to send you this message and just tell you that's what Jesus told us. Now, with that out of the way, are there any questions? Really? Have I just bummed you all out so badly that you've just got, you got nothing now? All right, then. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Bye. Tony, say goodbye to yourself. See (laughs) y'all. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study with Sovereign Grace.